All right. Uh, so uh, I am now joined by Connor. Connor, how do you pronounce your surname? It's Hall, like a hallway, and Blibe, like tribe. Hall Blibe. Very good. Connor Hallblub, uh, who <laughs> is running for Congress in Kentucky's uh, 5th District, uh, who uh, who reached out to me a little while back about uh, coming on and uh, and talking about his campaign, so I thought this might be a fun way to do it that way, as well as my talking to about it. You know, people could also call in and ask him questions. So, uh, Connor you want to just kind of start us up with a little bit of who you are, like kind of what your politics are and what you're running on. Right. So, uh, I, I grew up a Democrat. I'm 29 years old. I'll be 30 before the election. Uh, I grew up a Democrat. Um, but I, you know, I made my own kind of political journey and I think after, uh, so I graduated college in 2016 and, uh, you know, obviously that election had a lot of impact, on a lot of different people. And uh, I kind of started to see that the uh, center or traditional democratic party uh, for both uh, political and policy reasons, wasn't going to get us to where we needed to go. Uh, It actually took me a little bit longer than uh, maybe some other people who are kind of in your orbit to uh, see the light, so to say. Um, But, you know, as I've kind of become more and more politically engaged I think that uh, a community and coming together and really understanding the kind of class divides, uh, you know, that we see in this country, that's where we need to focus our energy. And I think the other thing of like, I'm kind of a, I'm a student of history and, um, and you look to the past and you do see that there were successes. Uh, There were uh, social successes in, in the world that seemed to have been covered up. So uh, I consider myself now a progressive, um, and that's what I'm running on in in uh, Eastern Kentucky. Yeah. So, um, so you are. I mean, you've won your your primary. They have, they have primaries for that. The uh, you're the Democratic nominee at this point. There was no primary. I was the only Democratic nominee. Okay. So. Okay. okay. Gotcha. Uh, okay. Yes. Running up, running up the post for that. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Um. So, I mean, I'm, I'm guessing, you know, based on that, certainly that it's, it's a, you know, I mean, it's, it's a, it's an uphill battle, right? I mean, like this is. Uh, Absolutely. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, so uh, can you tell me, tell us a little bit about the district? Yeah. So the district is Eastern Kentucky and it's, uh, it's the Appalachia region of Kentucky. Um, it's 33 different counties. Um, there's some kind of interesting things about it and what makes it a unique and, uh, a unique district and an important district. It's the second poorest district in the country. Um, it's the whitest district in the country and it's the most rural district in the country. So, uh, it's, it's kind of, uh, you know, it's different, but it's a, it's a beautiful area with, with tons of, of, of mountains and, uh, and greenery and, and everything else and some fantastic people. And it's been, uh, I believe underrepresented by a gentleman who's been in office since 1981. Well, tell us about him. So his name is Harold Hal Rogers. Uh, he is an interesting person because, like I said, there are 435 voting members of Congress. About 50 of them uh, are really impactful. Um, and this guy is probably within the top 25 most important uh representatives in Congress, but he's a person you don't really hear about a lot. In fact, a lot of people don't <laughs> have never heard his name, Hal Rogers. Uh, he's not like Matt Gates. He's not Jim Jordan. He's, he does his kind of work in the background, uh, quietly. He's kind of Mitch McConnell's, uh, man in, in the Kentucky house or, you know, in, in the house from Kentucky. Uh, uh, and that's kind of who he is. Okay. So he says he's Mitch McConnell's, uh, in the house, uh, from, uh, from Kentucky. So even though he is not like a sort of headline, brand. yeah, right. Headline grabbing firebrand. I mean, this is somebody who's just kind of like quietly, um, you know, doing what he can to, you know, to advance the interests of the 1%. Absolutely. And, and honestly, to advance his own interests, his strategy has always been to uh, 
to bring in the federal money, uh, which means that both Democrats and Republicans have always, quote unquote, hated him because they say he's bringing the pork. Well, you know, it's a district that desperately needs money. So he can show receipts and show millions of dollars that he brings into the district. But what happens after or how that money gets dispersed is the real problem. Yeah, well, I mean, so so how is it being dispersed? I mean, what's the like, like, take us through some of the nitty gritty here. Right. So he'll bring in money for uh, he recently brought in money for um, a sewage uh, revamp in one of the counties. Um, and that revamp was supposed to take place in 2019. So he brought in, I think, uh, $2.2 million, something like that. And he touted it. You know, I brought in this money for this new sewer system that this community desperately needs. But it's, you know, it's 2022 and, uh, and, and no, no sewage pipe has been laid. Um, you know, and those things aren't the most complicated, <laughs> complicated projects to go through. So what he does is he puts his people in charge. He's very involved with a lot of the banks, and if I feel, I, if I remember right, he's on the board of one of the major banks down here. So he um, he knows his people, and and that's typically where the money goes. Gotcha. Uh, okay. Well, look, let's let's hear a little bit. You know, before we start taking calls, you know, let's let's hear a little bit about the platform that you're that you're running on, right? I mean, like like what are the you know like what are the kind of policy issues that are important to you? So uh, my platform I keep very simple, and it's 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 really based around one idea, uh, and that idea is stability. In an area like this, um, you know, it doesn't matter how how good the people are, and they're fantastic people, but when your life is chaotic, it 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 trickles down into every aspect, into every community. So stability is my goal, and I accomplish that through three main um, policy positions, or and one of them is Medicare for all. If you know that you and your family will always have health care. No matter yeah. what happens, no matter how, how how you live your life, if you always know that that your children will always have health care. That, that helps your stability in your life. Uh, so that's number one. Right. Uh, number two is is jobs, obviously, but jobs not just jobs. You know, minimum wage jobs or small hourly jobs. You know, I want to provide people uh, to guarantee people a job through the federal government. Um, that gives people an, an opportunity to be independent, to take their family on vacation, to go to the movies, you know, a couple movies a couple times a month, right. uh, and, and that sort of thing. And then three, uh, you know, you uh, you're from Michigan, am I correct? That is correct. So you know about all the Flint the Flint water crisis up there and how the, the disastrous that is. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a Flint level water crisis happening in eastern Kentucky, specifically in places like Martin Martin County. Uh, a, a, nat- a disaster, a coal company spilled sludge 20 years ago, and uh, people in Martin County still can't use their water. Uh, you, they turn on the faucet, and uh, they can smell it and just see it. It's, it's just disgusting, and there's higher rates of cancer and everything else. So, uh, you know, my, my third thing is I want to make sure that when you turn on the tap for you and your family, that that water that you drink is safe, safe enough for you and your family to drink. It won't per- poison you or harm you in any way. So those yeah. three things are my uh, my platform. I mean, it really comes down to stability in people's lives. Yeah, that makes sense. Uh, if anybody has any questions for Connor, uh, go ahead and get in the queue. But uh, but meanwhile, you know, let's just drill down into uh, into, into some of those, right? I mean, like so, the first thing that you mentioned is Medicare for all. You talked about the connection to stability. Uh, you know, do you do you know what the the rate is of, of people in your district who uh, who are uninsured? I don't know the number off the top of my head, but it's I've seen it before, and it's 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 higher than the national average, a lot higher. Um, it you know this is an area that is that has both poverty, which is its own you know struggle, and also remoteness. You know, uh, rural hospitals are shuttering left and right, and uh, and people just even if they were insured may not have physical access to. A, to a, a hospital near them so it's it it's really kind of really hurts them from both angles right um yeah so i mean is there so i'm you know i'm just thinking about that that a hospital uh, that a hospital issue um so I mean, like you know, is there something concretely that you're looking at to try to address, uh, to you know, to address that, to, you know, to build more hospitals? I think the two big things is to have an ally, uh, you know, who supports 
Medicare for all. I think I, I, mm-hmm. I just think that that policy itself could could do a bunch. But also, you know, like you said, it's uh, you know we need to get together with uh, other rural uh, representatives from other rural mm-hmm. parts of the country to really find a way to have a specific rural hospital program, uh, a program that is going to fund hospitals that will not and cannot you know fund themselves that that just do, they do not have the ability to uh, to intake the money it would need to run them without outside help. So I think that, you know, we should have uh, a council or committee of of rural representatives to figure out exactly how we can uh, institute more rural hospitals. But the problem there is you also need to make sure you have enough people to staff, you know, a hospital. If there's not enough uh, doctors and, and, you know, just just numbers-wise, nurses Mm -hmm. and support staff in an area, you know, you could have the nicest hospital ever. But uh, so... You know, to address nursing shortages and doctor and general practitioner shortages, I mean, it, it all kind of comes together into a very complicated, big but possible uh, solution. Gotcha. Okay, we've got a call from uh, from Jenny. Uh, Jenny, what's on your mind? Uh, I just was wondering what you thought, Connor, about um, the fraud. There's so much fraud in Medicare, and it just feels like if that was to expand. I'm just not sure the government's able to deal with all the fraud. And while it would be wonderful for everybody to have health care, I'm just concerned about that side of it. Thank you, Jenny. I appreciate that. Uh, And and you're you're right. There's a there's a ton of fraud and it's not a trivial problem. I mean, I mean, it's uh, it affects people. But I think Ben has, has spoken on this before, is that. Uh, one of the reasons that fraud is able to persist, especially in the in the government realm, I mean, we already we obviously know that there's fraud in private insurance as well, but because we have a system that isn't a you know a full system that we've got these little pockets, little loopholes, uh, there's all sorts of space for fraud to develop. If you have a system that that's big but is simple, uh, it it actually would make things like fraud uh, a, a lot harder because you know we can see we can see it all right now. You need so much administrative staff to do billing and this and that. That that I think uh, allows for a lot of this fraud to take place. Yeah, that makes sense. That they uh, that if there's a you know if, if there's a single payer um, on uh, on the other end, that it's much easier to. Uh, you know, to keep track of, uh, you know, I think that's true. I mean, I think it would also be interesting to look at international comparisons, right? I mean, like, is, you know, like, what's the sort of rate of, of medical fraud in, like, Canada versus the U.S.? I mean, I assume that, you know, Americans are just, like, innately more corrupt people than Canadians, right? I mean, so, like, you know, whatever the difference is, it's about the system. Right, just making a system, a system that's bigger isn't necessarily more complex, like complex. Uh, it's bigger. It's, you know, takes a lot of energy, but it also means that, um, that we can control it actually easier. Uh, and so having a single payer system, I think it will eliminate all fraud. No, it won't. You know, there, there'll be fraud and everything, sure. but think of the fraud in private insurance. Now, uh, uh, put it all under one roof. It's a lot easier to, to, to monitor. Yeah, I mean, I'd also point out, and I'll you know bring back Jenny if she had anything else she wanted to, you know, any other thoughts about this. Uh, but you know, I'd also point out that even though I think you're right, I actually, I actually do think it's true that um, that it would be easier to crack down on fraud and abuse uh, if it's uh, if it's centralized. So you know, it's easier to track all of the information. I, I think that you know that makes sense to me. But I'd also point out that even if the opposite were true. Right, even if you were going to get more uh, medical fraud, uh, given um, you know, given the uh, given Medicare for all, that you know, you still kind of have to make a choice about which problems you care the most about, right? Like so, like let's let's put you know, let's put the fraud issue even on that assumption. Which again, I, I agree with you. I think the opposite's true, right? I think that I think it'd be easier to crack down on it with Medicare for all, but like. You know, even on the assumption that there was going to be more, right? We kind of put that in one column. We say, all right, so um, let's say for the sake of argument, right, there's increased fraud. And, you know, you're right, clearly. That's not a trivial problem. That's resources that are wasted, you know, that, you know, they're going to that. But then in the other column, we put what you mentioned earlier that, um, 
you know, the, the lack of stability, right? That every time you change jobs, right, you're changing health insurance, that if you, that your employer can change your health insurance at any time, that if you have, um, you know, to, to that stability issue, I'd also add a sort of issue about just kind of personal freedom to live your life the way you want to live it, that, you know, that there are people who stay in job like people who are lucky enough to be employed at all. There are people who stay in jobs they absolutely hate because, uh, they don't want to take time off to like train for something else or anything like that because they would lose their, their health insurance. There are people who stay in bad marriages, you know, cause they don't want to lose their health insurance. And right. then you, then you just have, uh, the inevitable toll of people who don't, you know, like people who are uninsured, who it, it doesn't have to be something big and dramatic, you know, that the, uh, but although the big dramatic stuff happens too, I mean, people die because their uh, GoFundMe's for their uh, their insulin, mm-hmm. you know, aren't funded. But also, like, it just means that a lot fewer people go in for checkups, right? Because if you uh, if you don't have insurance or you don't have good insurance and you're worried about how to be, you know, copays and all of that stuff, then you know, if you have something that like might be cancer and might be nothing, you know, you're less likely to to go in and get it checked out, you know, because uh, you know, because you've got that you've got that incentive not to, and you know, inevitably people do die of that, right? I mean, like the the rate of you know life expectancy and fit mortality, you know, mortality amenable to healthcare are all better in like Canada or Great Britain than the U.S. So I mean, I I would just I, I guess, you know, I guess my last thought before we bring Jenny back in, you know, would just be that, like, even if uh, I thought that this was going to be a big concern, and I'm not saying don't take it seriously, I think you should take it seriously, but uh, I, I would still say, like, you, you have to weigh that against all of these other things. Well, yeah. Could I share just a little bit of my story? <clears throat> I'm good with that. I think Ben is too. Yeah, sorry, I muted myself. Yes, please do. When um, I became very ill and had to be put on oxygen 10 years ago, it was just a matter of months before we lost our corporate job. And I've always thought that part of the reason my husband may have been let go was because my medical costs just went up significantly. And for two years, we were unemployed and then underemployed while he looked for another job. And so I lived for those two years without any health care. And um, it forced me to get into out-of-the-box thinking and live my life in such a way that I never anticipated having to live. I always have to have an EpiPen on me. And it was right during the time when the EpiPens were eight, $900 each. And um, it was just a very scary time. And then when he was able to get another job, of course, we got the health care back and it was great. But our oldest daughter had just aged out of being under that umbrella and had to go through a couple of years with nothing. And then she found one of these private doctor, private clinics that don't require you to have any insurance. It's just doctors who set up their own private thing and you pay $50 a month. And when you need some care, you go get it from them. And for her, she's 34. It's been a good fit. And the government didn't have anything to do with that. And it's just felt affordable and something that she could do. And so I understand the arguments for, you know, just simplifying it and let the government pay for it. But because I've had these personal experiences with having to basically do my own healthcare with very serious autoimmune diseases, um, and I lived, I made it through. It was scary, but I made it. And then with my daughter, I just, I'm just not certain that government paying for everything is the answer so thoughts well uh yeah thank you for sharing that i think uh you know like you said you didn't know if 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 your health costs or um if if that had something to do with with your husband and his job and and the stress that that brought upon you and then then your daughter and everything else uh i you know ben can talk, talk about this as well but um you know, I, I'll just say that I don't, see, I don't see much difference between if the, um, you know, I think the private private insurance can just as easily kind of kind of screw people over as uh, as any sort of government government program. Uh, and is is the the type of care or the type of payment system that the doctor that you spoke about is that replicable for three hundred fifty 
400 million people across the country. Um, and I, I w- I'm still just, I'm still, I would still say that a single payer, uh, system supported and, uh, sponsored by the government that doesn't have the profit motive at play, uh, both solves the financial issues. And again, I think the health issues, uh, more than any patchwork system of, of, of private insurance companies. And we can just see the proof in the, in the last, you know, 50 years, hundred years. Yeah, I mean, I would say, like, listening to Jenny's story, I mean, what what hits me is, like, almost everything about this, I mean, I'm really glad it worked out, but I mean, like, almost everything about that story, I think, kind of goes to why it's really bad that we do have this uh, this patchwork system, that, that her husband's job, you know, that there were adverse consequences to that, she suspects, you know, because it's set up that way, because, you know, we have... Uh, get a healthcare link to employment, you know. So I mean, that wouldn't have happened uh, if we uh, if we had Medicare for all. Whatever sacrifices she was making in the intervening two years, I mean, again, I'm glad it worked out. But um, but I, what I would question is just like, should you have had to do that, right? Or or would it be better, right? If people kind of have that foundation as they're living their lives, that you know that they that like that's just kind of off the table. That's taken care of. You know, it's like the same way that if you have you know, if we made people, you know, if we didn't have public schools or, you know, we, you know, we only had private schools, you had to pay tuition to send your kid to public school, you know, that like, you know, if there's a story about how like that was going to be a problem, but you figured it out and then eventually you found like a school with reasonable tuition rates or something. Okay. That's good. But like, is it good that as a society, we take that off the table or we take off like, you know, police and fire protection that, you know, that you don't have to worry about how you're going to pay for that month to month or have it paid for through your job or anything like that, that that's just off the table. And, and I would say like, again, that's great that your daughter, after she, she aged out, I mean, did find um, a doctor, you know, clinic that, that worked for her that, you know, that was charging something she could afford, but that's also, that shouldn't even be a question. Right. Like, like, should it be that you have to worry about like, well, could I, you know, this particular person is OK because they found something that worked for them uh, that like isn't charging more than they can afford. It doesn't require health insurance and all that stuff. But um, but what, a, you know, but of course, you know, I mean, that took a while to find. Right. I mean, you know, you didn't find that to, you know, to meet your needs you know, in those two years between and like, you know, the best solution for you is made back on, you know, your husband's, uh, you know, health insurance, get employer health insurance. Like I, I would just question whether anybody should have to find one of these fixes, you know, private fixes or whether it would be better for everybody. It'd be better as a society if that was just something that you didn't have to worry about it that way. Well, two weeks to the day after my husband was laid off, the Apria company came and took my oxygen equipment away. And yeah, I was back, I was back mm-hmm. down in the eighties and nobody cared. Nobody cared. And during those two weeks, I had made it a matter of prayer. What am I going to do? What am I going to do? And I was able to get my hands on a concentrator that I just purchased myself with some of the severance mm-hmm. money. And that was the ticket to me being able to just survive because when your oxygen's chronically in the 80s, you, everything is just broken in your body. And it, that little concentrator kept me in the high 90s for years. And interestingly enough, once we got the insurance, I wanted to get a new machine. And my insurance company said no. They were so mm-hmm. vested in those that old technology and the refill tanks and the oxygen people having to lug around their tanks. They were not willing to pay for this new sophisticated technology that was just kind of, I just fell into it. You know, like I said, I think it was a miracle from God. But um, since then I felt more empowered because I owned my own equipment. And when the time came for us to upgrade, we just did it on a payment plan and, and, you know, spent the money. It's very expensive, but I feel more empowered because of those two years than if I had been on the Apria old concentrator for the last 10 years which you know if things had been right and he'd been able to hold on to the job that's what I would have done and very comfortably been on it but like I said I I feel more empowered to own my own equipment and so it was kind of a blessing in disguise I know there's no easy answers for all this but I I just almost feel like we would be lying to people to say that if we had Medicare for all 
they would get 21st century top American first world care when we all know that that would not shake out. And so I, I just, why, why do like, we, why do we know that? Because we can't afford it. Well, I, I, I think that, um, I, you know, obviously you can never know anything, but I think the thing to do is, is to look at comparables and you would see that, uh, people in other countries that are comparable, you know, are rich countries that, uh, are very, you know, first world countries, they do a really good job and, and nothing's perfect and they've got their problems and everything. But at the end of the day, those pe- the people in those countries feel that, uh, I, I just don't think that having people struggle for years and years on end on the, on the hopes that maybe they, they break through the system. I, you know, as a as a politician and someone who wants to represent at the federal government level, I don't don't think that's the right way to do things. I think if those two years, if you had had uh, what you needed, um, I would say you know people people's lives I think would be easier, and and that's what I'm trying to to accomplish. Yeah, I would it's also definitely a oh, layer sorry. of stress. You know that I wouldn't mm, wish on yes. anybody because when you're sick and you can't breathe, you know it's an emergency, and so you know it was very difficult to live through those two years. My point is that, you know, for other people who have similar health conditions that are deadly, you know, the anaphylactic shock that I struggle with when I get exposed to certain things, our lives feel tenuous anyway, even with insurance. And so to have it all jacked up to that next level is scary. But I made it through and I'm, I'm getting older. I'm a grandma. And, you know, my, my bottom line point is, when you do too much for people, um, sometimes that can create some problems and some unintended consequences. And so a little bit of tough love and saying, you know, let's own our health. Let's do better with our own personal care. I get very serious about exercise and diet during those two years. And um, it was just a chance for me to really reassess what my goals were. And I I just, you know, I wish you well. I, I'm not telling you what to do or what to think, but I just thought my, my story might have some value. All right. Well, I appreciate that. Uh, Thank Jenny. you, Jenny. I appreciate that, Jenny. Uh, I, I do want to move on to uh, to the next caller, but I, I, I did just kind of want to say one thing, that, you know, about Jenny's story, which which is that, uh, you know, what she's describing, again, I'm really, you know, really happy that it worked out for her, but I think as she describes it, it sounds like it wouldn't necessarily work out for everybody in those circumstances that like part of, you know, the payments, you know, the expensive payments she said for the new machine that they owned, um, you know, that they could do that with the severance money. But of course, not everybody, you know, if you're like a gig economy worker, um, you're not, you know, yeah. you lose your job. You're not going to have any severance money, right? You know, that's, uh, yeah. you know. Well, you well know. there were, I, there were, I bet a lot of people who were in Jenny's situation. And again, thank God she, she was able to do it, but there were a lot of people who aren't here today who, uh, who, who couldn't make it through. Um, yeah, exa- yeah, exactly. Like if you, mm-hmm. yeah, I mean, like if you're like an Uber driver or something and, you know, you like, I mean, you're, yeah, there's, there's no, you know, there's no severance money. There are lots and lots of situations where you would, you know, you wouldn't have that. Um, well, and, the fact that in in this day and age, that anyone has to deal with someone, maybe literally ripping an oxygen tank like out of the, you know, out of their nose and everything, because just for the ability to not pay when we could solve that issue. I mean, that issue could be solved. Like that's that's disgusting. I think. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that, um, and I would also just point out in terms of the idea that we wouldn't be able to afford to have 21st century, you know, American style healthcare, mm-hmm. uh, that, you know, that, that I would, I would just say on that, you know, that if you, you know, I mean, if you actually look at the, the numbers, um, I mean, I know it's counterintuitive to a lot of people, but like it, it's more cost efficient to, uh, to do it this way because, um, you know, to, to have Medicare for all, you know, I right. mean, the, uh, like if you look at the international comparisons, the United States, uh, spends, you know, like people spend more on, you know, on healthcare, like, and collectively as a society, we spend more mm-hmm. on healthcare and get worse outcomes, right? Again, life expectancy, right. mortality, all that stuff, uh, than many other comparable societies. And, uh, and if you have, um, you know, and if you had healthcare paid for out, you know, out of progressive taxation, you know, then uh, the most, you know, middle income people who have insurance right now, 
wouldn't right. uh, would actually be paying uh, would actually be paying significantly less because it's it all goes into one pool. You know, none of you know none of the money right. you know it you know is going into insurance industry profits and advertising and you know and all that stuff, right? You know that so well, like the the well, it's the, almost that yeah. yeah. It's, it's, I'm sorry, it's almost like this country is almost set up uh, to actually run that system perfectly. Uh, it's a large, like you said, it's a large country, which actually makes certain things easier. Uh, we don't have, we generally outside of, you know, COVID now, but generally don't, uh, in this country have, you know, paras- parasites to, to really worry about, uh, you know, uh, wet and dry seasons, which do a whole thing. I mean, what, what are the big factors like diabetes, cholesterol, heart, uh, issues, uh, you know, solvable problems. It, it's almost like this country, like I said, is almost set up to really actually take on Medicare for for all or single payer system very well. Yeah, no, I I, I think that's right. I think it's also important to re- to recognize that, you know, once uh, you have something like Medicare for all, or you know, the same way as like the Medicare system they have in Canada or the National Health Service in Great Britain, um, that they have this this kind of concentrate. You know, well as like uh, Murphy points out in the chat, you know, this kind of concentrated bargaining power. Uh, with you know, with anybody who's like manufacturing medical supplies, etc., right? You know, because it could pretty much set the uh, the price of that. That also makes it right. The same pricing scheme isn't. It's it's not the pricing scheme that it is today because today we don't have Medicare for all. It it it, it, it everything kind of changes to where the prices you see today don't reflect what like Medicare would pay for things today. Yeah, exactly. Uh, one last point about this before we go to the other caller, uh, which is. Which is just, I, I do agree, like with with Jenny, what Jenny says. I mean, just in terms of like life advice, you know, about sort of taking ownership of your own health and all that. She mentioned diet and exercise. Uh, yes, right, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, but uh, I I think that's you know I think that's important. I think that's good, you know. But I would also point out that if you look at the international comparisons, um, the United States both has the most like free market, you know, healthcare system right. in the developed world, and like the worst uh, stats for like all that stuff. In right, the, there's uh, nothing stopping anyone in this country from from doing all that. You know, you, most places you can go outside and go for a run, or gyms are gyms are very cheap. Uh, you know, you uh, could go to Whole Foods all the time and get the best products. If you, I mean. We have that system now, and uh, it, it's not a realistic system to expect that on a on a countrywide well, yeah. scale. I mean, I would also just say, like, um, look, lots of people don't go to Whole Foods, right? Because right. because it's expensive, because they're because uh, <laughs> right. uh, because like uh, they don't want to, you know, they're not buying ingredients to cook because like they're working two jobs when they get home, they're exhausted, and they just want to like you know, right? The real world doesn't. Uh, Again, I I would I needed I probably need to, to to get back in the gym a little bit after COVID and everything, but uh, I also still want a doctor whenever whenever I whenever I need it. Yeah, no, absolutely, and, and again, <laughs> both are both are important. But I would also say that like there's a lot that I think we could do to make people less uh, you know financially stressed and have more free time and all that stuff. If you really want the diet and exercise and all that stuff to come into the picture. Then, right. um, then I think you need to work on that too. But in any case, let's uh, let's take uh, before we go. Let's take uh, Schnarf's call. Uh, what's in your mind? What's up? How you doing, Ben? I've uh, I've heard you like on zero books, and uh, I have to say you're very polite and you're very nice because my reaction to Jenny is totally different. Um, I think what we're doing here, or what she's basically doing, is she's applying the Protestant work ethic to um, staying alive, meaning that we have to suffer and we have to pay a price to be able to live, right? And I think that's morally repugnant as well as being insane because, as you mentioned before, the uh, the OECD – Every year comes out with statistics and it says basically that the U.S. spends way more than any other country to worse results. Our life expectancy is extremely less compared to most developed countries. And we have to ask ourselves why. And there's really two definitive reasons. So one thing that I've, I've, I've always known um, is that it's based on, on the fact that we've commodified healthcare so much so that in the next 
10 years from what I read uh, from 2019, that healthcare is supposed to jump from 10% to 27% of GDP. That means that we're cannibalizing ourselves, right? Healthcare is not a commodity because intrinsically it's tied to production, right? So we live in a society where our production is so worthless that we've turned to basically cannibalizing ourselves for profit. The argument that we just can't afford it is the biggest crock of shit that I've ever heard in my life. And anybody that says this is really performing the the most fantastic form of cognitive dissonance that I've ever heard, okay? I don't know if I'm the only one that thinks that way, but I hope you guys feel that way. Ben, I swore either you were a Marxist somewhere along the line. Yeah, so... There's nothing that Jenny said that's true. So so I, I, I agree with you, right? I agree with everything you just said. Uh, but I would, you know, but on the... Um, I mean, obviously, yes, everything you're saying is stuff that I think anybody knows anything about me would uh, would know I agree with, right? Uh, the, uh, you know, I, th- I think the reason, you know, I mean, I, I guess I would say, like, on, on the sort of, you know, politeness issue, I'd, I'd just say two things. One, yeah, you're right. I mean, I am actually pretty polite, you know, like, uh, in 99% <laughs> of interactions. Shame on you. Just as a matter of personality, I mean, I'm a Midwesterner, right? But like that second, uh, you know, yeah, that second... politeness. If he's that polite all to, to you all the time, that's not a good sign. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> but I would also I would also just say like, look, I also you know I mean I don't know maybe it's cheesy, but I mean I think about like Michael Brooks, you know, be ruthless to systems and kind to people, you know, that it's like. When I when I you know when I listen to Jenny, I think yeah, I don't think she's drawing the conclusions that I would like at all, right? I mean, like I obviously disagree with her about you know all that stuff, right? But like, you know, this is also just an or- like she's not a health insurance executive, right? right. She's, she's a she's an ordinary person who's actually been through some pretty bad experiences and like has not at all drawn the conclusions that I would like from that, right? And and I'm I, you know so. I'd like, you know, I'd like her to draw different conclusions for sure, right? Mm-hmm. You know, and like, I'm, I'd like to do what I, I can to, to, to help her draw different conclusions, to help other people who are in the same, uh, you know, uh, who like, you know, like, but I also, I also don't see a lot of advantage, right? Like to, uh, I also don't see a lot of advantage to, to just being like, well, you know, you're a horrible person or whatever, you know, cause it's like, unfortunately, right. I mean, I think probably a lot of people, right. You know, think, you mm-hmm. know, think, think that way who are just ordinary, you know, who are just ordinary, uh, ordinary working class people, you know, and, and I want them not to, right. You know, well, for sure. You know, like, and, and I, I want to, I want to do what I can to sort of point out why I think it doesn't make sense. And, you know, why they should think about this differently, but like, I don't, you know, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna get mad at, you know, mm-hmm. I mean, if, if shoot, you know, I mean, if there was like a Blue Cross Blue Shield lobbyist who called into the show right now, I would get mad at them, right? You know, <laughs> but like, I'm not gonna. I'm not but, gonna... but it does speak to something that I that I like yeah. both you guys to 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 have a yeah, yeah, to, yeah. to give me yeah. your feedback on. Um, so, Connor, you're running for office. You, you, I think this is my my secret undercover uh, tip for you. Okay. I think in the American psyche, there are two disturbing things that seem to form the judgments of the masses. One is the relationship of something towards wealth and money, and the other one is unspoken violence. In America, I feel like the the movements that profess um, kind of a, a malignant ability to harm the opposition are the ones that tend to get the support of people. I don't know where it comes from. Actually, I do know where it comes from, but I I don't think that I don't think that if we come out with a passive message or politeness, it's going to do any better than if we turn around and adopt the same tactics that, you know, someone like Donald Trump or the Oath Keepers or any of these other extremists take up. Right. But the differences between us and those people is that the numbers really support what we say about Medicare for all and and other things. Right. 
Yeah, I mean, right. I, 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 well, I just, I, I just think that like the choice of targets matters, right? Like, mm-hmm. like, like, like in other words, like some ordinary person who hasn't like come around to the things that I want them to come around to is one thing, right? I mean, that person isn't my enemy. They're just, you know, confused maybe, right? You know, but right. like, you know, they have a, you know, I, I think you need to, I think you need to be able to, I think you need to be able to, uh, to make those, you know, to make those distinctions and, you know, and I think you can be ruthless where it matters and, you know, and, and like, you know, kind, right, well, especially interpersonally where it makes sense. But I, I know, I know Connor went to get in on this. Well, I, I just wanted to say that I think, uh, especially everyone listening on this call, I mean, uh, I've listened to Ben for a very long time, and I know a lot of, a lot of you are probably in the same boat to where, uh, you know, we've lived in, in I'll just speak for America and, and middle class America or however you want to put it. Uh, we've lived our entire lives in this system where, uh, where uh, private business is better than public, uh, that money you know, something that costs more is, is, is better quality, you know, to, to just the systems that we're, we're living in. And we all come about this in a, in a different way where we're trying to break free of that kind of institutional thinking or that kind of thinking that we've been taught our entire lives. Um, and so it, it behooves us to understand that not everyone is at that, that, that space or that level for everything. You know, I, so it, it Literally, it, some of the things that we're talking about here is going completely against how uh, our society has 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 taught us for, like I said, our our entire lives. None of us, I think, are 150 years old. So, uh, you know, it's it's hard. It's difficult. And yeah, pick. You know, you should be aggressive with people. And and you know, I'm I'm aggressive on this campaign, uh, but I'm aggressive to the right people. It's uh, you know, you do got to pick your shots. But when you do, you know, it's like in boxing. If you, if you're if you're gonna punch. Uh, you know, you better punch full force, but you, you know, you're not swinging wildly. So it's, it's, it's tactical, it's strategic. I know that doesn't sound very good, but it's, it's just the understanding that, that we are doing something big and powerful here, which is break, kind of breaking free of, of, of the, the kind of pup, the thought of the, of the nation or the thought of the, the 20th century, 21st century American. So it's hard and it's, it, it's hard yeah. to do, but, uh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I would just say it's like, look, um, and by the way, I'm sorry, uh, Schnarf, I, uh, I'd, I'd hit the button to go out to the next caller cause I wanted to transition after this and then they dropped out of the queue. Uh, so, uh, if I, I would have stayed with you for another minute if I'd, uh, if I'd realized that the, uh, the other caller wasn't sticking around, but, um, but, but I just want to, uh, I just want to say, right. It's like, okay. You know, you mentioned Marxism in the call. So, I mean, let's, let's talk about like the sort of most direct instance of class struggle, like in the workplace, because I think that's what really is going to, okay, here we go. Uh, yep. Let's get you back. Uh, so let's talk about the most direct instance of class struggle that's in the workplace, right? There are two different contexts. And I think this is the perfect way maybe to, to frame the point, right? So, uh, so think about the difference between the context of like talking to like a fellow worker who hasn't like signed a union card yet and like try to convince them that they should join the union and the context of like actual of like talking to the boss, right? You know, being like, "Hey, if we don't get what we want right now, we're going to go out and strike," right? You know, those are completely different contexts. I mean, like if you think about, you know, one of the recent you know labor victories that I and probably you, you know, I mean, find most uh, most inspiring, right? The you know Chris Smalls winning the uh, the Amazon uh, unionization vote, you know, in uh, in Staten Island. Um, what if the people, right? He talks, uh, or no, just, it's not him, but it's uh, Justine Medina, who's one of the organizers for that campaign, talks about this in her interview in uh, Current Affairs, uh, that, like, what if the, um, uh, like, and, yeah, Nathan Robinson quotes this, and he has an article called The Left Must Be Ruthlessly Strategic, uh, which which I really like, especially because it feels like Nathan coming around to a lot of things that I've been saying for a long time. But, uh, <laughs> but I have... Uh, but like in that article, he quotes this, right, where uh, where where this this organizer said, look, what if the people who did the most to sign people up for this, the union was this guy named Uncle Pat, who's this Italian-American dude, Staten Island, right, who uh, who voted for Trump uh, and uh, and is like still not, you know, like anything like a leftist and like was not uh was not like a uh, supportive of the union when the campaign started, you know, but then that he saw like the, 
you know, screwed up things that the, uh, uh, that, um, that the, uh, the company was doing to like crack down on the organizing campaign and like, it, and, and then like he kind of came around hard and he ended up signing up hundreds of people personally to join the union, you know? And, and so I'd like, just, just kind of like, that seems similar to me, right? It's like, like the, a lot of the things that Jenny was saying, like somebody like my mother-in-law, right? She would nod along with a lot of what Jenny just said. Right. Like is and like my mother-in-law is just like, you know, she's, uh, you know, she has never been, you know, like, I think, you know, she, she didn't go to college, you know, like her husband is now retired, but, you know, was a truck driver, you know, she's never worked outside of the home. Like, uh, you know, I mean, like, like the, she's always been pretty low, you know, they've always been pretty low income, but like she has a, you know, but she has a lot of like pretty conservative impulses on a lot of things, and I and I I think that you could like, yeah, I I think that you could I think that you could uh, sort of approach people in very different ways, you know, when you're talking about the context. That'll be my big pitch on that. Yeah, and I just I'll just kind of add, you know, about, especially about Chris Smalls. He you know he went on Tucker, and his message was through Tucker to a lot of people who watch Fox News who. Let's be honest. A lot of them uh, probably said some kind of nasty things about people like Chris Smalls, uh, right. and 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 he knows that. Uh, but he was getting that message out because he knows there are some aspects where he can reach them. Uh, maybe not culturally at certain things, but you know, like like Ben said, if 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 the class struggle can be found in the workplace, a lot of them have a lot of the same experiences as him. Uh, you know, I I applaud Chris Smalls for doing that for going on Tucker. I wouldn't like it if it turns out that Chris Smalls was going to Tucker Carlson's uh, dinner party, but uh, to, to utilize him for for that for for the utilize him for the appropriate purpose, I think is is, is correct. Be careful, yeah. Connor. You're going to start sounding like a like a like the c word. <laughs> no, there's a there's we don't a say d, that c word. There's a d next to my 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 name on the ballot. That, so it, that, that it could be official. a c and. And it might be a communist, and then then it's then your campaign is going to go down the toilet. So yeah. I, I I I don't disagree with you guys, right? I, I think I think that the the difference is is this is I think that what we have is a, a basic evisceration of the American left from the from the World War II era all the way up to like 1972. And then the American left gets sucked into this kind of black hole and then reemerges somewhere, you know, after like, say, let's say like oh, the Obama and, and the, two, uh, the 2008, 2009 financial crisis. Right. In, and my take on it is really simple. I think at some point or another, the politeness about economic issues and, and the conditions that people live in needs to catch up to the condition of the wokeness and the, and the identity politics that exists in, in the so-called American left. I think people become very passionate about bathrooms and, and pronouns, but they're not passionate about people dying from from sharing insulin they're not passionate about the fact that you know their wages are low because in their opinion they're low skilled labor and this is as good as it gets right and i i think the american psyche needs to change and it starts with the most primal emotion that we all have and that's anger and i don't know why we're not angry enough and i maybe i'm the only one who's angry but I don't see it, and I don't think change will come until people are really pissed off. Yeah, I mean, look, I think you should be angry. I just think you should be angry at the right people. And if you used to watch me on uh, Zero Books, you said, uh, I think you know I, I, I'm largely with you about identity politics. I mean, look, I, I mean, I think people should be left alone to, you know, to go to the bathroom in peace, you know, uh, and without, you know, genital checks. But I mean, like on a lot of the rest of that stuff, you know, I'm with you. Um, and, uh, and, you know, and I think that, uh, I think that it's, you know, I mean, cause, cause I, I absolutely agree. I mean, I've, I've written a bunch of stuff about this, you know, I mean, I think that we should be focused, you know, we should have a laser like focus. I mean, I think you should have, you know, positions that reflect our values and every other issue, but I think we should have a you know, laser like focus 
on uh, on the things that are have the most appeal to the widest group of people who uh, that's uh, you know that that's the sort of like core stuff that you know that is is most important to you know to to the needs of you know of, of most people like what you're saying about insulin you know for example and uh, and you know this is why I'm I'm happy. You know, um, I'm happy that uh, to talk uh, to talk to uh, to Connor, uh, and you know, and I'm happy to hear you know that I mean he's he's you know fighting the good fight you know against long odds you know to uh, uh, to to run in this district in Kentucky and that like and that he's and that he's pushing as a central issue something that like even some politicians I don't hate, you know, have kind of shied away from, you know, which is, right. uh, you know, which is the importance of, uh, of Medicare for all, you know? So, uh, I think that's awesome. Uh, this is not going to be our last conversation, but, uh, but Connor, where can people find your stuff? Where could they, you know, if they wanted to like, you know, send some money to your campaign, maybe, or like check you out more, where can they find that? Absolutely. Well, first, uh, first of all, thank you, Ben, so much. Uh, you know your audience and, and your insights. It's it's the right right kind of people that that I think would be appealed to my message. Uh, my website is my name Connor Hallblib C O N O R H A L B L E I B dot com. Uh, they can find me there. They can donate through there. I'm also on Twitter Connor underscore Hallblib, and uh, I'm on Facebook Connor Hallblib for Kentucky Fifth. Um, I just want to say one more thing, uh, Ben. Did you did you watch the Kentucky Derby this year? I did that. Well, the the winner of the Kentucky Derby was the longest odd winner in Kentucky Derby history at 80 to one. Uh, so as I tell people, uh, don't look always at the odds. If you're in the race, you can win the race and a race against an 84 year old, uh, incumbent who knows what can happen. Nice. All right. Well, uh, I'm rooting for you. Uh, we will uh, cut it off there, uh, for, uh, for today, probably do another one of these, um, uh, on Thursday, not exactly sure what we've got going then, but I'm going to try to do that. Left is 